As we go back to the Gospel of John, John chapter 12, as you're going there, we're going to be starting in verse 27. I want to remind you that Advent will be starting next Sunday, and Advent is a time to anticipate, to look forward to the coming, the first coming of Christ, and it's a great tradition to do some Advent activities in your home, and I would encourage you to do that. And one um, of the options that we have for you this year is in the app for free, and we also have these at the Resource Center. It's a little Advent book uh, by Pastor John Piper, and you can pick that up. I think it's $4, and they're on the Welcome Center cart. Again, if you go to your app, and you go in, and you go to the tab that says Advent under um, I think it's, I mean, to just tell you exactly where it's at so you know, you go uh, kick, hit the more button and under the second tab is, says Advent and there the book is for free. And so it's a PDF version. So I hope that you'll take advantage of that. We also have another children's resource available to you. So we're in John chapter 12 and we're going to be in verse 27 through 36. Let's pray and then we'll get into this passage of scripture. Father God, we thank you for your word that we do, uh, God, we desire to build our lives upon. And as you told us that if we build our lives on other things, if we make other things more important in this life than Jesus Christ, that when the storms of life come, that our lives will come crashing down. And God, we desire to build our life upon you, Jesus, and to be like Jesus, to do the will of God for the glory of God. And I pray today as we look at those themes, God, that you'll remind us to to live by the strength of the Holy Spirit, trusting in your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Just a real short recap of chapter 12. Chapter 12 has been a pretty long chapter in itself. Jesus, at the beginning of the chapter, attended a dinner, a banquet, in the home of Lazarus and Mary and Martha in order to probably celebrate Lazarus being brought back from the dead. And so that happened at the beginning of the chapter, and then Mary anointed Jesus with a very expensive oil, and then Jesus enters in, what we call Palm Sunday, enters in to Jerusalem to great fanfare, and he struck fears among the religious establishment that possibly his popularity could bring down the anger of the Roman Empire, the Romans who were, they were occupying Israel, the nation of Israel. And so that was where we led up to until last week we saw some Greeks some non-Jewish people came, and they began to ask the disciples some questions. They wanted to get an audience with Jesus. Well, Jesus didn't respond to the request for the audience, but what he did was to begin to make a final plea for the salvation of Israel and the salvation of people. And so we'll pick up in verse 27. Now Jesus, um, it says in verse 27, now is my soul troubled, Jesus says. He, he's praying. He's saying it, but he's praying it. And what shall I say? Should I say, Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. And then Jesus prays, Father, glorify your name. So all the parables, all the information that Jesus has been giving leading up to this point has been pointing toward a grain dying that someone must give their lives. And he, so he's, he's been pointing to it. Now he just comes out and says it. This is the purpose for which I've come. It, it's, I've come to earth to suffer and die for God's glory. And it says right here in verse 26 that he was emotionally, or verse 27, he was emotionally troubled over what was about to happen, what would come. Look at verse 20, 27. It clearly says, now Jesus says, my soul is troubled. And so Jesus was God, and we know that he was also the word who became flesh. 
And so Jesus, as we've seen throughout the Gospel of John, he's capable of experiencing the full range of non-sinful emotions. In fact, some of the K-groups who do sermon follow-up, you discussed, are, are emotions sinful or not sinful? Well, Jesus showed emotion. Jesus wept. Jesus was troubled. And this is a very strong word here that's used. This is one to be agitated or having this inward commotion that was going on. In fact, it's the exact same word that Jesus is going to use in chapter 14 when he tries to comfort his disciples. And he says, don't let your hearts be distressed. The same word, distressed. He says, you believe in God, believe also in me. So don't be distressed over what's to come. So it sounds a lot like the word we use, which is anxiety, right? That Jesus was struggling with his internal conflict. He was deeply troubled. And so what does he do? I think it's a great pattern, and this isn't the sermon, but it's a great pattern that we see what he does. He's honest with God. He's honest with his Father. He says, I'm troubled, right? It's just an honest expression. There's something amazing about just being honest with God, and you would think that would be a given because we know God, what God knows our hearts, and he, what, he knows what we're thinking, knows what we're struggling with, but there's just something of freeing and something that says, I'm not in control. Like, God, you're in control. I'm troubled. I'm struggling here. But he remembers his purpose. He says, but for this purpose, I've come here. All right, even when Jesus tells the disciples in chapter 14, don't let your hearts be troubled, believed in me. You know what he points to next? He says, anybody know the next verse? In my Father's house, there are many mansions. If it weren't so, I wouldn't tell you. He gave them hope for the future. He says, even though the short term is troubling, you can know that God is working for a purpose. And that's what he's saying about his own life. Even though he's about to drink the cup of the wrath of God, Jesus knows, he remembers his purpose. And so it's one thing to be troubled by our sadness and the evil around us, and he knows our pain. He recognizes when you're going through, he dealt with the same things that we did, Scripture says, yet without sin. And so as you're going through the pain of unbelief or betrayal or death, he knows what's happening in your soul. He recognizes it because as, a, as God who became flesh, he went through it and he recognizes it. And so he prayed for God for strength, although he was fully willing. And so there's help from God when we're willing to ask him and seek him. You, did you know that the opposite of anxiety is resting in God? The opposite of anxiety is resting in God. And God listening to us doesn't guarantee that he's going to make the problems behind our anxieties go away. He doesn't promise that in Scripture. And we need to understand that. Sometimes I think when there's a simple or naive approach to faith, or maybe you've not really been discipled well, and prayer to you is just getting out of the situation so your life is easier or better. But Jesus is our example because clearly he's doing the will of God, but it's not going to bring him more physical comfort in the short term. It's going to give him great pain and agony, but he goes to the cross for God's glory. But he knew that path would not be easy. So he says, Father, verse 28, Father, glorify your name. And this is very much what we see in the other gospels in the Garden of Gethsemane. John doesn't recount this. He doesn't give us an account of the Garden of Gethsemane. But when Jesus prays and he cries, Father, let this cup pass from me, but not your will, my will, but your will be done. And so we talked about this when we covered through the Gospel of Mark, the Garden of Gethsemane. But it's important, I think, for us to remember that Jesus 
clearly told his followers, his disciples, that you're going to suffer and you're going to pay the ultimate price for following me. And we know that most of the disciples were martyred for their faith. So he warned them. He told them. So let me ask you this. What was the root, at the root of Jesus' distress? It was not a fear of dying. And it wasn't a fear, I don't think, of even suffering. But it was the reality that he would bear the sins of the world. Let's talk about that for a second. Sin is a belittling of God's glory. That's what sin is at its basic. It's a belittling of God's glory. And Scripture tells us, Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. In God's economy, for him to be vindicated, the wages of sin is death. His justice demands it. But what we see in the cross and what Jesus is going to do here from the timetable of the Gospel of John in just a few days, in love, God made a way for us. Jesus would hang on the cross and he would take the awful punishment of God's wrath that we deserved. And Jesus would be temporarily separated from his father, even though theologically that's hard to grasp and get our mind around. How could Jesus be separated from his father as God? But some way Jesus is temporarily separated from the father. For God's glory, God's wrath would fall fully upon Jesus instead of those who deserve it, which is you and I. That's what happens in the cross. And that's what Jesus has great distress over. So God sends his son to absorb the wrath and to bear the curse for all those who would trust him. Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. How? By becoming a curse for us. And in Jesus' humanness, he felt the full weight of that moment that was to come. He felt the full heaviness, the full burden, and Jesus is greatly troubled as he anticipates the cross. In fact, other verses speak to this. Verse eight, eight, chapter 8, verse 32 of Romans, it says, God did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. He didn't spare his own son. He gave Jesus up for us all. And Isaiah 53 puts it even more bluntly. We esteemed him stricken, smitten by who? Smitten by the Romans, by the Jews. Of course, they were instruments in that, but it's smitten by God. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. He, his father, has put him to grief. So God's ways are higher than our ways. And I think we need a robust understanding of the gospel to understand why Jesus died. Why did he have to go to the cross? And so sin, if you see the picture here, if you grasp my words and the words of Scripture, sin is a pretty big deal to God, isn't it? It's a big deal to God. Since our sins cause Jesus so much anguish and pain, don't you think that we should hate our sins and work every day through the power of the Spirit to fight our sins and kill our sins. Sin is a big deal to God. And I mentioned this last week. We talked about this last week. I think it's important to revisit this. Because in our humanness, in our way of thinking as flesh, we want to work and earn. 
It, we, everything in life is set up to work and earn to gain favor. And so we think that if we can just be more obedient and more moral in our life, then God will be happy with us. And we flip it around and we make it about us. We turn our relationship with God, what God did for us on the cross through Jesus, we make it about our efforts instead of about Jesus Christ and what he did on our behalf. And I said this last week, obedience offered in love, it's the fruit of grace. When obedience comes out of our love relationship with God and we're seeking him, we're pursuing him, that's not legalism. That's the antidote I said last week for legalism. Obedience offered in love is the fruit of grace. But when we turn it into, I've just got to go out today and try harder, we miss the gospel. We miss why Jesus went to the cross for us. And so if you're trying to be good apart from seeking God's glory through a real relationship with Jesus, let me just tell you, your life is going to be miserable. Your life's going to be miserable, and you're going to feel defeated constantly. Because we've been created to live for God's glory, and when we flip it around and we make it about effort and earning, we miss the point for the cross. So let's talk for a second about glory. What is God's glory? All right, it's a term and an expression we throw around a lot, and we even sing about that a lot at Christmas, the glory of God. Jesus prayed, Father, glorify your name. What do we need to know about that? In the Old Testament, many different Hebrew words were translated into English for glory, but the most common Hebrew word has this idea of weightiness or worth or value. Weightiness, worth, or value, all right? So the Hebrew was predominantly the language of the Old Testament. The Greek was the language for the New Testament. And the New Testament word for glory means brilliance, honor, praise, worship. That's what the New Testament word means. So if you put these together, glory is worth and value that results in praise. Worth and value, you see worth, you see value, but you don't leave it at that, but it results in praise to that. So just imagine, all right, picture a celebrity comes to Bainbridge, all right? Put in your mind a celebrity that a lot of the young people would go crazy over, all right? All right, if that person, she's walking down the street, what would immediately happen? Everybody who was a fan, everybody who admired this person, what would they do? They would run out to the street they would gather around trying to get a glimpse of the person. What would they be doing? They had their phone trying to get selfies with the person in the background. If they get close enough, get a selfie with the celebrity. They would be praising them by getting autographs, responding to their worth, their value, their weight. Something here is happening because somebody, most people in Bainbridge, right, are, don't have that worth in my mind, right? So I'm responding to who, what I think their worth is by acting with praise, all right? And, and you've seen the videos, maybe some of you lived through it, when Elvis would get up on stage. Sadly, you, the, 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 the camera would pan to the front row, the front few rows, and these girls would be like crying and stuff like that. You know, talking talk about expressions of worship, right? They're worshiping this guy on stage. People worship by the way that they respond to the worth of something, the value of something. And so when it comes to God, he's so far superior to anything around us, any celebrity. Why don't we respond to him with the response of worship because of his weight and his worthiness? Why don't we respond with awe and praise and devotion? i tell you why. Because even though God is of supreme importance, for most people, God's just 
He's, he's kind of important. He's somewhat important, right? We believe in God, but, you know, typically when we have trouble, that's when we go and seek after him. Some, a couple of years ago, probably by now, got a call one evening, and I could barely hear the phone call going on because it was a terrible signal. But I recognized immediately once I got to a good location and she got to a better location, it was Michelle calling me. And she was on her way to Tallahassee, going a back way, had a flat tire. And she called me to tell me that, you know, I, well, I'm in trouble here. I need you to come and help us. And, you know, my, it was fearful in my mind because it was starting to get dark. Here she is on a rural road. And, uh, and I think Millie was with her. And so I, her signal dropped at several points. I went to find my phone thing so I could figure out exactly where she was. It gave that big wide circle, you know, where you're not really sure where. But I kind of narrowed it down to one road, Antioch Church Road. And so I headed out there, was driving down Antioch Church Road, eventually came across her by the side of the road, pulled in there, all right? So let me ask you this. When do you think about your spare tire? Not very often, right? Only when you need the spare, all right? So as I was thinking through this story, I, I'm pretty sure I remember that our spare tire was messed up, right? When I wrote the notes, I was like, I think I, I, our spare tire was okay. But actually, as I, I'm telling the story, I remember the, the spare tire was messed up and it wouldn't work because it gets no attention only when you need it. And that's how people who put some importance to God, some value to God, that's how they operate. They operate God as, like God is their spare tire. And when they need it, when they're in a crisis, when they're in the jam, God, you better come through for me. I know I haven't really thought about you much and haven't really spent any time with you, but please come through for me. And so we turn our faith, instead of being to the glory of God, practically reality, it truly is for our glory, not for God's glory. Because God is just of some importance to us. And so when we see our lives centering around us rather than God, we definitely aren't living for the God's glory. But the more you understand the glory of God, and you place him in the position of supreme importance. So we can't leave this conversation until you really reflect on the thought, is God the center of your life? Are you desiring God to be the center of your life? What's your response to God look like? Jonathan Edwards, a guy that lived many, many years ago, he wrote this, he said, God is glorified not only by his glories being seen, but by it being rejoiced in. Not just by being seen, but being rejoiced in. And so think about and keep that illustration in your mind about how you respond. And maybe that's a better indicator of the level of your worship and admiration for God than the things that you know intellectually or you think intellectually about God. How are you responding? You need both. You can't respond properly if you don't know the right things. But there should be the response. So Jesus prays, Father, glorify your name. God the Father responds now in a special way. Look at verse 28. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it. God says about his, himself, I have glorified my name and I will glorify it again. This is only one of three occasions in the Gospels where we see that, G, that God audibly just spoke to, to Jesus. And this statement here confirms that even in this moment of anguish and this tension that Jesus is feeling, either to love his life or to hate his life, 
the Father is certain of the outcome. He says that, look, I've been glorified in it. My name has been glorified through you, Jesus, and it will be glorified again. It's as good as done. The cross will happen. Jesus is not going to fail and not come through. Jesus understands what his purpose is. Verse 29, the crowd that stood there, this is interesting, and heard it, said that it had thundered. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. A few years back, and I say a few years, I mean, this was probably many, many years back. We were in St. Augustine. This was before we even had kids. Michelle and I were there staying. And one night we went into our, our room, and all of a sudden I heard this bang noise, right? This loud noise. And honestly, the only, even though this was pre-9-11, the only thing I could think of was like, man, somebody just fired a gun. And so I ran to the window and looked out, and what did I see? I saw in the sky a bright light and then a splinter of a bunch of lights flickering down and realized what I thought was artillery was actually a celebration. It wasn't anything threatening. It was a good thing, right? And so when Jesus hears God's voice, they hear something completely different. Is it an angel? Did it just thunder? They didn't know what was it and what it was. And so it's interesting that some people heard one thing, some people heard another thing, and they weren't sure what it was. Was it fireworks? Was it artillery? No, it's God the Father speaking. And then Jesus says in verse 30, look, he says, Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. But they didn't hear the voice, did they? It's an angel. It's thunder. The people could not make sense of the voice of God the Father, the same way that they couldn't understand the Word who had become flesh. The same reason that all the adoring, loving crowds who had followed him around were not going to stick with him at his moment of distress. They were going to abandon him. Let me ask you this. Here's why they didn't hear. Their level of spiritual sensitivity was terrible. And we'll talk more about that in a minute. But when God speaks, what do you hear? Do you hear thunder? Do you hear something maybe supernatural, but it's not God? God speaks through his word. We, we just sing about it a bunch, okay? God speaks through his word to us. But if you're not in the word, you're not going to hear the word. And I dare say that many times that because you're not spiritually sensitive to the word, that when the word is given, maybe you hear it and you're maybe for a moment or two, you're intrigued. But the true sign of whether you really heard it or not was whether you leave here and obey what it says. Don't just be hearers of the word, be doers. It's like the parable that Jesus gave where the seed was sown and some reception happened for some of the people they immediately sprung up with excitement, but it died out over time. There was no life. There was no depth to it. There was no stick to itness, longevity to it because it wasn't real. And so God speaks. God isn't hiding, all right? If you're here today, all right, in a room filled this much with people, all right, there's got to be people here who are just, you're seekers, you're not sure, you're trying to decide about this whole God thing. And I'm going to encourage you to know that God's not hiding, God is revealing himself, and it's not some mystical force or philosophical idea. It's a person of Jesus Christ revealing himself. In fact, when Paul went to the Athenians in Acts chapter 17, 
and he began to tell them about God and speak to them about God, he, he says this. He says that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him, yet he is actually not far from each one of us. So he says every human being is aware of God's glory at one, from one, one level or another. You're aware of God's glory. There's just a general revelation of God that's been given to all people. And every human heart has been created to be a searching soul, designed that way by God so they would find him as the rest and not find it anything else. And let's be honest. Think back through your younger years, possibly. There was a lot of things that we tried to shove into that God-shaped hole to try to fill us up and make us feel like we have value, that we have a purpose. But most of those things we know ultimately showed us to be failures, false gods. And they run their course. They have their moments, right? But at the end of the day, only God can fill that hole. But it's going to cost you something. It costs Jesus something, and it's going to cost us something. Jesus makes that clear. I love the words of another really old guy named Blaise Pascal. He says, In faith, there is enough light for those who want to believe and enough sh shadows to blind those who don't. There's enough light if you want to believe, seeker. Those who are uncertain today, you're not really sure about the whole cross, Jesus raising from the dead thing. You're really not sure about all this. Maybe it's a good way to organize your life, some good morals, some good principles. Maybe you vote conservative even. But you can do all these things like the Pharisees, live a squeaky clean moral life, but not know God and recognize Jesus Christ. If you put the focus upon yourself, even if you're religious, you're going to be miserable. You're probably miserable sitting here right now listening to this because you don't know God. And those who are, are, come up with many intellectual reasons why not to accept God, let me just tell you right now, it's not about who has the smartest intellect and who studied the most. There are some people in this room whose IQs are way higher than yours who have put their faith in Jesus Christ, who have trusted Jesus Christ, and they're building their life on Jesus Christ. It's not about just gaining more information. If I can learn enough, then I'll come to the right conclusion. God is speaking. He's not hiding. He's revealing himself. He's closer than what you might think. But will you respond to it? Verse 31. Jesus says, now is the judgment of the world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from this earth, will draw all people to myself. So the cross, Jesus says, is not only just his glorification, but the cross is judgment for the world. How is the cross a place of judgment? It's do you have faith in Jesus or do you not have faith in Jesus? At the end of the day, when you stand before God, he doesn't say, let's measure your good works versus the evil things that you've done. Let's say which one wins out. He says, what did you do with the cross of Jesus Christ? Did you place your faith in Jesus? For those who have come to faith, the cross was judgment already. It's done. It's in the past because he's already taken our place. He's already given us his righteousness and we find deliverance in there. For those who refuse, one day you'll be judged by the cross. What have you done with Christ? And then Satan, he speaks to, he says, the ruler of this world will be cast out. Now, we don't have time to look at all the implications of what this means, but I just want to point out a couple of things. Clearly, Satan thought at the cross that he was winning, right? 
I remember in The Passion of the Christ, you remember at the crucifixion, if you've seen that movie many years ago or even recently, how Satan responded. He thought that he had won the day. Boy, when he was surprised three days later. But the way that, G, that Jesus defeated Satan at the cross, many ways, but one way is this. What is Satan? We sang about it earlier. He, he loves to accuse. He loves to make you believe lies. And even, even the gospel message that is so clear that it's not about you, it's what Christ did on the cross, Satan wants to twist that and make that about you not realizing that what Jesus did on the cross settled it, all right? Hear me clearly today. It settled it. There's nothing to earn, nothing to measure up to. Jesus, faith in Jesus, he did it all on your behalf because you couldn't do it. You could not do it and you could never do it. And so Jesus died on your behalf. So when Satan comes and he accuses us, he throws our sin in our face, your failures in, the, in your face, tells you you'll never be good enough, you take him to the cross because that's where he was defeated. And you say, in the cross, I find my righteousness. And Satan, you're right, I'm not perfect. And I fail and I sin. But Jesus has spoken a better word. And the word is this, you are now pure and clean and holy in my sight because of your faith in Christ and what he did on your behalf. And so when Satan tries to throw those sins of your past in your face, when he tries to accuse you and tell you the things that were done to you or the things that happened to you or the failures and sins that you had in your life, make it, you'll never, ever be good enough. You go to the cross and you do it again and again and again and you say, this is where I find my worth and my value, only in the cross of Jesus Christ. And we remove the focus of ourselves. We make the focus him. We have to do that again and again. And Jesus says, when I'm lifted up from the earth, I'm going to draw all people to myself. What does he mean by all people? He means people of every nation, color, creed. Every people of all nations are going to come to him. It doesn't mean all people will come to Jesus. It means people of every ethnicity, every tribe and tongue and nation, as Scripture tells us. But the crowds, they're not going to make it, are they? Many were close, but most will abandon him. Why? Look at verse 34. So the crowd answered him, We have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? What are they asking there? They're saying, this doesn't fit into our theology. We don't get a Messiah who's going to die. We want the, the Messiah, which was, as prophecy said, from the line of David to sit on the throne forever and ever. But they miss the prophecies and all that pointed to the suffering servant of the passage we had earlier, Isaiah 53 and others, where Jesus would have to die. And so they said, who is the son of man? They wanted to know what kind of Messiah Jesus really was. All right, we followed you all this way. We've watched you do these amazing things. We watched you heal the sick. We've even seen you raise the dead, but we need a Messiah. What, what are you doing that you're going to be lifted up, that you must die first, that you have to give your life? That's the purpose you've come. That doesn't make sense to us. We can't follow a Messiah like that. And so they ultimately, we know, turn away. And Jesus makes one final appeal. Verse 35, Jesus said to them, the light is among you. I'm here. 
for just a, a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest the darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he's going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you might become sons and sons and daughters of the light. Jesus pleads. He, he reaches out. He says, I'm the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of the Father. I'm here revealing myself to you. I'm only going to be here for a little bit longer. Are you going to believe? And he makes his appeal to them. So many around Jesus were so close, yet so far away, weren't they? It's really sad. And I think the same is true in our church culture and the church culture of the world today. There's so many people who their extent of their relationship with God is truly just coming to a building and sometimes a very nice, impressive building with lots of cool glass, amazing ceilings, and just major architecture. But at the end of the day, they're just going through emotion. They don't know God. They don't have a relationship with God. And it's just all about, I just want to be good enough this week. And Jesus says, it's about God's glory. You can't measure up. It's not about your glory. And my glory is found that I'm lifted up from the earth. I'm going to draw all people to myself. So in closing application, God's glory is being revealed everywhere. It's, it's coming through everywhere. And if you find yourself in the camp of an atheist or an agnostic here, just go out in the night sky and look up and be honest with yourself. Really? This all just by chance happened. This all came about. God, his glory is breaking through. And he says, he's speaking and his light's shining and his glory is everywhere. So the question we have to ask ourselves is, what would our lives look like if we demonstrated complete commitment to the glory of God like Jesus did? If we demonstrated complete commitment to God's glory. And it doesn't have to be necessarily that you go to a library like Buzz Beecham. In fact, 1 Corinthians, it makes it so simple. It says, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Eat and drink to the glory of God. And so where does this start? It doesn't start with greater resolve. Don't write down in your Bible, today I will change. All right? We're not going to do an altar call where you come up and rededicate your life. Where it starts is you pray and ask God for the grace that you need to rest in the cross, to live as a person of the cross. Each and every day, start your day reflecting upon the cross. And God, my anxieties are going to be great today if you don't show up. Because I'm going to easily forget my purpose for living for your glory. And I'm going to be like Martha, running around like crazy, trying to make everything happen the way that I think it should happen. But at the end of the day, I should be doing what Mary was doing, sitting at the feet of Jesus. Yes, we have to do things. We have obligations and we have commitments. But resting in God and in the cross of Jesus Christ is the opposite of anxiety. We have faith. We believe his promises are better. And even as our souls can be troubled, we say, God, I recognize that this is going on in my life. I admit it to you, and I ask for your grace to help me to continue to live my life for your glory and not for mine. Let's pray. Father God, 
We thank you for this word of truth. We thank you for Jesus and his life and his death and his resurrection. And God, I pray that we will quit trying to do this in our own strength, but truly out of obedience is just birth from love, love for you and love for our neighbors, that we will live our lives holy as you're holy. God, I pray that you'll give us the strength through the Spirit as we battle against anxieties. We know if Jesus could struggle, trouble, be troubled and struggle, we can sure be troubled and we can struggle. But God, help us to focus on our purpose and trust you and cry out to you. And God, I pray that you'll give our congregation, these people here in this building, God, give them peace to rest in the cross each and every day. In Jesus' name, amen.